Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Hope Booksia podcast. I'm Summer. And I'm Carrie. And uh, since we've been talking about sex, drugs, and self-improvement, um, <laughs> <laughs> part of that is uh, we want people to learn real, honest history, right? So um, if you were a listener to Broken Broken, you may already know Leo. He is our favorite historian. Um, and he had talked to us on one of those episodes about how you can change the world through proper education and specifically through teaching authentic history. Um, so he has agreed graciously to come on today to talk with us about Columbus, he who shall not be named in my home. Um, <laughs> which, because it is October, we didn't, even though we aired the first episode on Indigenous Peoples Day, we did not mention the C word because... Fuck Columbus. There you are. All right, so here's Leo. Hey, do we have to say Leo five times, like Beetlejuice to make him, or is it three times? To make Leo, him Leo, Leo. <laughs> Oh, it's Candyman that's five times, sorry. Okay, <laughs> adding the string. Hi, Leo, welcome. Hello, hello. Actually, I think it's Beetlejuice three times and Candyman five times. I think you're right. So you can be whichever one you want to be today. <laughs> All right. So can you give us a little background? You teach middle school history, yes? Yes, I teach middle school history at a private school in Southern California. Um, God, I've been teaching middle school history. I think this is year 15 or year 16. Um, it's literally been the only thing I've ever really wanted to do in life. It is uh, pretty fun um, being able to, to teach students like real history and not just the stuff that's kind of made up and all the, the lore and the folktale of American history. Um, I do it in some pretty unconventional ways. We actually do things like called research and kids actually get to share their opinions and uh, we don't use a textbook. So uh, yeah. What a revolutionary idea crazy teach them crazy. actual truth mm. <laughs> and they only... like it and that's the part <laughs> i love is how much your students like it and how engaged they are so i have a little bit of hope for the young ones coming up <laughs> <laughs> i get i get like 65 a year so i mean i guess slowly but surely hopefully we're, we're changing the world a, a little bit at a time hopefully all right so uh that c word what, tell us about him. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's there's not a lot of positive just to say about that guy. As a matter of fact, I'd imagine that there really is none. Um, and I don't bother to to really sugarcoat that for my kids or for anybody else who's willing to to listen and pay attention. Um, even when it comes like that whole age of like exploration, like I don't even call it that. Like I, I call it the age of exploitation because um, I really do think that like language matters and in the context Absolutely. in which you use it, and especially when it comes to 12, 13, 14, and 15 year olds, um, being able to reframe it in that way, I think is crucial. And I think it really starts off the, uh, the topic on the correct foot and not just a foot that, you know, America typically wants to, to start it off at. Um, Columbus really is the start of what we know of as American history for, for better or for worse, which is pretty ridiculous seeing as like, he's a guy that never really set foot in what we know of as United States. And yet, and still this country has a really kind of morbid obsession with this guy. I mean, Washington DC is literally the District of Columbia because of Christopher Columbus. Uh, the World's Fair that we used to have in, in, in America up until like the, the mid 1900s was because of Christopher Columbus. 
Um, Columbus, Ohio, named after Christopher Columbus. Columbia, South Carolina, named after Columbus. What was the connection from the World's Fair to Columbus? Uh, the idea of like wonderment, um, exploration, you know, discovering new things. Oh, okay. So, I, yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, he's got a uh, he's got a, a pretty kind of a, a cult fan following here in America. And we decided to throw him in our textbooks um, and to give him a bunch of credit for shit that he doesn't deserve. Um, and it's really interesting that this country has found a way to obsess over this man that really had no idea where he was. Um, for for all intents and purposes, I mean, he took three little small ships after he begged and got rejected from tons of different people in Europe um, to try to fund his his endeavor. Um, completely got lost, mislabeled people, which we still decided to, to use that I word today, which is again ridiculous. Um, and our and our country itself and our federal government have like officially taken that that name up, which to me is is insane. Um, and I would also say that that like when it comes to to Columbus, um, the destruction that he caused and continues to cause here really is um, the nexus of what American history is. He's a he's an exploiter in every sense of the word. He's a a colonizer. Um, he's a murderer. Uh, you know him coming to the quote unquote new world, and I always have to put that in quotation marks for for my students as well. Um, really does lead to everything that we see today. And uh, when I think that when we think about America and we think about it in the context of, of racializing it, um, Christopher Columbus is not really like the, the first, you know, hero in America. He's really like the first white supremacist. Like he is a symbol for white supremacy all across this hemisphere and honestly across the world. Like he gave, you know, white people the idea that they could pay pretty much go anywhere they wanted to and they could do whatever they wanted. Um, and for people that really want to go ahead and use the excuse of, we know he was a man of his time. He didn't know any better. Everybody was doing it. Um, that's trash too. Uh, because even his men, based off of, you know, different primary source documents that we have, whether we're talking about uh, De La Casas um, and his primary source uh, in his diary, um, even his men knew that he was a horrible human being back then and had no problem saying it. Um, he was so horrible that even when it came to, you know, the king and queen of, of Spain, you know, that they had decided to imprison him when he came back to Spain on numerous occasions uh, because of some of the crimes that he committed against humanity. Um, whether it was sending indigenous peoples from, from the Tainu back to uh, Europe to be enslaved, um, he really was just a shit human being. And that's something that like most people don't really think about. And uh, we really do have like the words and the context for that. It's just that when it comes to American history, we decide to omit those pieces and try to uh, Posh him up as nice as we possibly can. And um, I mean, one of the things that he gets a ton of credit for is, uh, you know, the Columbian Exchange. Um, and when you look at any one of those numerous diagrams that talk about, like, you know, what was brought from the old world uh, to the Americas and vice versa, whether we're talking about corn or squash or tomatoes or potatoes or things of that nature, uh, the last things on that list kind of always off onto the side ends up being, you know, disease and, and destruction. And they put up a little poison symbol with like the, the skull and crossbones. And it's always tuck, tucked off in the corner. Um, but that was really what he brought. Um, when I talk to my students, one of the last things that I try to leave them with is the idea of, uh, you know, thinking otherwise. That history didn't have to happen the way that it did. Um, that human beings really made conscious decisions to uh, make the choices that they did that led us to where we are today. And that those things were not inevitable. That History has had millions of opportunities to, to turn other ways. 
And I, I really challenge him to think about what could have happened if people like Columbus had come to, you know, um, to the Americas um, with the idea of sharing and wanting to learn instead of wanting to conquer and wanting to exploit um, and, and how much different things could have been. Um, and some of the things I try to leave them with is like, I asked them to think about Italy, you know, that's supposed to be, you know, Columbus's famed birthplace, although we're not even really sure of that. Um, and I asked them to think about like, when they think about Italy, what do they think of? And one of the first things they think of is pizza. But from that point, I asked them to think about, you know, what are the ingredients in pizza? And the first thing that they come up with is tomatoes. Um, and then I asked them to look up where tomatoes come from. And tomatoes aren't indigenous to Eurasia, they're indigenous to the Americas. Like what ends up making the most notable food in Italian history is that its central ingredient is not European. It comes from the Americas. When we think about like uh, the potato famine, why the Irish left Ireland and came to the new world, uh, you know, the quote unquote new world and came to the Americas as, as immigrants in the 1800s and early 1900s is because potatoes, you know, stopped growing in Ireland. But where did potatoes come from? They came from the Americas. And if people there had bothered to learn exactly how potatoes grew, they would realize that you couldn't keep growing potatoes on the same land over and over and over again because it ends up taking all the nutrients and eventually it stops growing, which is why you have to learn how to rotate your crops. And if they again had come to the Americas with the idea of wanting to learn and wanting to share instead of just wanting to take and wanting to conquer, those are things that they would have been able to avoid. Um, but I guess when it comes to uh, you know a lot of whiteness in, in history, um, you know a lot of whiteness really does. Um, you know, it really does uh, go against its own best interest. You know, and that's unfortunate because uh, things can turn out a lot in a lot of different ways. Um, I'm glad that here in, the, in Los Angeles, we have stopped, you know, celebrating Columbus Day. And over the last few years, we've moved towards celebrating Indigenous Peoples Day. Um, and we have a lot of great celebrations that are around here that I encourage my students and, and other people that I know to go to and attend. Um, they end up really being great. Um, they really end up being like great activities to go to and, 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 and look at and see. Um, because, you know, L.A. doesn't really get as much credit for its indigenous population as it probably deserves. But L.A. is like the largest, um, has the largest population of indigenous people that live here uh, from all over the world. And most people are from all over the world. And most people don't even realize that. Um, and even when we think about like the indigenous people that live here in, in California um, and, and that are like native to California, we don't necessarily think about them as being real people. Like we think of them as like living in the past and, you know, just being exterminated and, there are living, thriving people here that have that connection and have that history um, that most people don't bother to, to learn about. And so uh, Indigenous Peoples Day does help to bring that about. And it should be more than just one day because we really can't tell the story of America without telling the story of Indigenous peoples. And uh, if we want to tell it accurately, then we have to call it what it is um, and call American history what it is and call people like Columbus and other explorers what they are too. And, and that was, you know, they were just horrible human beings. Um, and these are all things that can verify. I mean, and again, and I show my kids primary source documents, I show them the words from back then. Uh, we look at statistics of, of what we believe the indigenous populations in these places look like before he got there and what they look like after he got there. Uh, inevitably, like when they start to do their own research, they all come to the, to the point where um, Columbus literally writes in his own diary how funny it was for uh, tiny people who had never seen, you know, metal and swords to, to want to touch his sword because they were you know, enamored by it and they were they were fascinated by it. And he let them grab it by the blade and not by the handle to watch them cut their fingers. Uh, cut Some of them cut their fingers off, some of them bled profusely. And to him, like, that was funny. Um, you know, after he, uh, 
after he realized that there wasn't going to be any large amounts of gold in the in the you know West Indies, um, he had quickly decided to move and pivot to the idea of enslavement as a way to to kind of recoup his his money and in order to make money. Um, and I asked my students to think about like why that is. Like, how is it that he turned from, damn, I'm coming here so I can so I can make a whole lot of money finding gold to you know what I'm just going to turn all these people into enslaved people. Um, and one of the things that we end up researching is the fact that. Columbus knew about enslavement because he was a part of, you know, the slave trade. He had already been to Africa. He'd already seen what this looked like. And so for him, like, this was a very natural um, backup plan for him, which should, again, show you, again, what a trash human being he is. Um, and at the end of the day, like, I, I try to give my students the opportunity to come up with whatever opinions about him and other people that they would like. Um, but I do like to put, you know, forth the facts in front of them and let them make up their own decisions and let them make up their own minds. And if they still come to the idea that he is a decent guy, then you know what, so be it. They can't say that they didn't know. Um, but in my 15, now going on 16 years of teaching, I've had very few kids that have looked at Christopher Columbus the same way after we've just talked about him and other exploiters as a way that they uh, that they did before. And um, to me, like, that's, that's progress. And uh, I really do wish that more schools and in more districts um, and our state standards would look at that uh, more critically. Uh, but unfortunately, our our history is not here to, uh, to actually teach the truth. It's here to make us more nationalistic and make us more patriotic. And uh, it's here to actually indoctrinate us, which is a uh, pretty funny thing as where we are as a country. Um, and it's uh, it's not a coincidence. So, uh, yeah. Can you um, give us some more, I guess, some of what those primary sources are. Because I know that's one thing that I've run into, you know, when I worked on getting Indigenous People's Day, you know, I was on the efforts in Norman and Oklahoma City, and I've helped support in other, in other cities. There are a lot of adults that have no idea that those diaries exist. They have no idea there are actual primary accounts from that time. I had no idea until I met Summer, and Summer explained it to me, and I was like, what? No. That, what? So, I, like, my mind is blown, and I, like, don't know where to go for, like, research for that kind of stuff. I mean, some, some of the basic things that you can do, and this is, and I mean, and this is, I guess, the problem of education in America anyways, is that we rely so much on textbooks to just kind of, like, shout history at us that we don't ever think about the idea that, you know, we can go out there and find it. And uh, to me, like, there's a difference between learning history or being educated in history and then actually doing it. Um, and some of the more basic things that, that we can do in order to start to learn how to, how to find these different resources is to start by, like, opening up a, a Google search engine and typing in Christopher Columbus primary source documents. And, and you'd be amazed, like, some of the things that pop up. Um, being able to look at credible sources and, and knowing that, that when you find certain sources that, are, that are, uh, have a .edu at the end or a .gov, that those are going to be traditionally more credible than like a .com or even a .net. Um, and then when it comes to like some of the ones that, that are actually out there, um, we talk about, we, we look at different mediums. We look at YouTube for, for different videos about different um, groups of people, including Columbus. Um, I'm going to go ahead and see if I can find the primary source document regarding De Las Casas. So if you were to go ahead and Google like uh, Bartolome de las Casas and look up a uh, diary um, or primary source, you would end up finding out that he has like a, a journal out there that like you were able to take like bits and pieces from um, in order to uh, learn a bit more about that time period. Um, and again, I mean, these are the ways in which 
you know, we get to use history to basically turn it against the people that have written it. Um, because in that way, like Europeans and, and white people have given themselves credit for creating these, you know, wonderful language and, and being able to write it. And, you know, that's what made them different than, you know, indigenous people that didn't have written language and that sort of thing. But at the same time, they also wrote down what was going on at that time period. And those people weren't worried about history. And they weren't worried about they weren't worried about it looking nice for you know the generations of people to come. They were literally writing what was actually happening. And so in that way, again, like we get to go ahead and, and use you know their their wonderful invention um, against them. I think that that's critical because it's a lot. It, it's really easy for a teacher to stand at the front of a classroom and kind of shout out these different opinions. It's another thing when you can show kids exactly where things are, and even more importantly, when you can actually give them the tools in order to find this information and. Uh, at that point in time, it becomes less about, well, you know, my teacher just doesn't like this person or that person or doesn't like that event. And it becomes more about, well, that was written in 1493. So I'm not here to argue it. That's just what it is. And those are just facts. And in uh, that part right there in and of itself is really important to do. I think, um, I think I was in college probably before I realized, before I learned how information gets into textbooks. <laughs> and so how you end up with such absolute bullshit in textbooks that they then use for 30 years or longer. Yeah. Um, so I am, all, I am all for teaching students how to uh, research and actually learn things. And in fact, I was in college before I was ever introduced to the idea of primary sources versus secondary sources. Me too. Yeah, we didn't, we, I had never even heard those phrases. You know, we were all plagiarizing our reports from the encyclopedia. I didn't know shit, man. Um, so, <laughs> so we didn't learn anything useful. So I see all these people and like, so if they're not going into secondary education, I understand how they don't know any of this that's that that they were lied to yeah and, and that honestly like that was a point i mean and, and even when we think about you know textbooks like these textbooks aren't here to necessarily tell us the truth and again like you said like these textbooks basically just get recycled over and over again for decades at a time um because the textbook industry is big business and it's not a coincidence that most of it is centered in texas um and we know exactly what texas is all about and, and what their agenda is and um it's funny that, that you have a lot of you people that are talking about, you know, indoctrinating kids, um, you know, critical race theory and that sort of thing. And yet, and still like, you know, the biggest indoctrination that we have is American textbooks. Like they, they've been doing it for, for centuries now. Um, and so even when I knew that I wanted to be a history teacher, and I actually knew that I wanted to be a history teacher in the fifth grade, I had a, a great elementary teacher that used to tell great stories about the Revolutionary War and the War of 1812, and he was like an old like Korean War vet, so he was super old anyways. Um, but from that point forward, from the fifth grade on, um, and even until this day, like I actually learned more about how to be a history teacher and what I wanted to be as a history teacher from what my history teachers didn't do. I mean, I, I can't really think of any quality history teacher that I had K through 12. Um, I didn't really start learning the truth until I got to college, and that was only again because I wanted to find it and I took classes that were, you know, outside of the norm. Um, but most of what I do in class is a, is a direct result of what I had to do in my own classes as a student. And so I kind of vowed to myself that I wasn't gonna do that for, for, for my students. And so uh, 
that's how I wake up and that's why I, I live in, in, and that's my practice every single day is to actually do the opposite of what most of my K-12 teachers did. So you want to be a history teacher since you were in fifth grade. Was there something that like triggered it for you that you wanted to do that? Um, as a kid who did not talk very much in class, because I was always quiet and shy, um, I loved the way that he told stories and the way that he could keep us captivated. And um, we would come in after playing softball um, because literally in fifth grade, like the three things that we did in fifth grade the entire year were learn how to play chess, which he used that as a way to kind of talk about strategy mm -hmm. um, and how to like plan things out ahead. Uh, we played softball and that was literally the way that we learned math by like doing our batting averages, fielding percentages, uh, count our total bases. And like, that's how I learned math. And then after we played like hours outside and, and we did all of our computations, we'd come back in for the afternoon, all hot and sweaty. And he would like close the doors, turn on the air conditioning, turn on the fans, close the blinds. He would actually light candles around the room to try to create like an atmosphere. And he had all these posters on the wall of like different um, revolutionary events. Um, and he would basically pick one off the wall and he would basically just start telling the story about it. And the way he could tell a story as intense as he was, um, you know, how emotional he got, like that was the coolest thing ever. And I was like, I, I wanted to learn how to, you know, captivate an audience like that. And so from that point forward, like that was, that was my idea. Really cool. I think you're doing a great job. It's so fun. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I hope so. <laughs> This is mildly off topic, but is that an I Stand with Standing Rock t-shirt you're wearing? Yes, it is. Nice. I love it. I, yeah. have one to, I have one like it somewhere. Yeah, most, most of my shirts that I wear to school every day. And I'm, and I'm pretty lucky that, I mean, I teach at a private school that is really progressive. Um, and they support being able to wear shirts and, and take stances like this. And so most of my wardrobe that I wear to school every day is you know, some sort of statement that, that needs to be made. And in some cases, like it really does lead to, to great um, conversations from kids because they've either never seen it or they ask a question about it. Um, but to me, I, I, I figure that one of the best ways to get, um, to get in touch with kids and to relate with them is to show them visual images. And so I have images up on my doors, I have images up on my walls. Um, even my, my very shirts that I wear every single day are, are various, whether we're talking about uh, black empowerment, uh, crushing the patriarchy, uh, supporting indigenous peoples, um, supporting Asian people as well, um, talking and helping dis people with disabilities and things of that nature. So um, I try to come up with something new every day and um, that's kind of where my wardrobe and all my money goes to, so. I like that a lot. <laughs> As a I want to be in your class. <laughs> <laughs> so when, um the standing rock movement was happening you incorporate you taught your class about that right definitely um no, no matter what i'm teaching about um we always make time for what's going on in the world um current events are always something that's a, a really big staple in my classroom because you can't really teach about history if you're not willing to connect it to what's going on today um because everything that's happening today has happened before um, and so to be able to make that, that correlation to it and be able to kind of backtrack and rewind it to where it started from um, ends up being really cool for the kids to see. Um, and it does let them know that like, you know, what we're going through right now isn't anything that is brand new. It's brand new for us, but not brand new for people in general. Um, and I think that that helps to, to allow them to make connections. Um, and I think it also helps to like have them put things in proper context. Um, and even when, even as like Standing Rock was going on, like us being able to talk about 
like the history of it, um, you know, how we got to, to that point and, and that purpose. Um, you know, the idea of like where it was, um, pipelines in general, um, talking about indigenous lands and different treaties that were made and not to mention like treaties shouldn't have had to be made in the first place because this was indigenous land and not to be sold or not to be traded. Um, when we look at like the, the idea of the history of even like the pipeline itself and how it was actually supposed to go through, um, I believe Bismarck, um, you know, the people of Bismarck rallied and decided, you know what, we don't really want that pipeline going through our, going through us and going through our city. Um, I had them look at the demographics of Bismarck and it wasn't a coincidence that most of this Bismarck is, is white. And uh, those people were allowed to go ahead and uh, make sure that the, the pipeline got moved. And of course it got moved to indigenous lands. And we looked at the history of pipelines as well to see that the fact that like, there's no such thing as a good pipeline. There's no pipeline that actually works. They all burst, they all have issues at some point in time. Um, and to see people there that were standing up and fighting for their rights and literally for their lives. Um, and it also brought up the idea of, you know, government interference. Uh, talked about the idea of, um, you know, the police and law enforcement. Um, and they were able to see images and they saw videos. Um, and one thing that I also wanted to see, uh, one of the things that I wanted them to see as well, because I teach at a primarily white institution, um, I wanted them to see, you know, white people there that were supporting as well. And I also wanted them to see like how some of those white people were being treated too. So like, this was more than just about like white supremacy, right, white supremacy in and of itself. But that even when white people decide to stand up and fight against it, that like, you know, white supremacy itself will crush them too. Um, and I thought that that was something that was important for them to see and for them to notice. And uh, it was something that we kept track of on a, on a weekly basis. And it, uh, it really did kind of help develop, you know, their own ideas of what this country does and what it has been and, and, and you know, what it is. And it also began to help them deal with, that, with the ideas of like what it could be. Um, and, you know, it was something that was very important. And so, uh, yeah, I do my best to make sure that I incorporate as much current events um, from different people that I possibly can. And it's, uh, it's a staple in class because everything has a history. And so uh, one of the things that I try to leave them with um, often is, you know, um, there's no coincidences in history. There's only connections. And so uh, I try to leave them with that and uh, we kind of go from there. Okay. Yeah, that's where I was going with it was the connection. How easily do they make those connections between present day exploitation like that and, you know, Columbus and the exploitation and invasion that, you know, happened following and all of those events between. You know, I mean, once they start learning and, and once you're able to kind of put together the, the framework and the foundation of it, it becomes pretty easy for them. Um, and, and not necessarily like they, they don't always necessarily make the direct connection to it, like right off the bat, but they end up thinking that like something doesn't seem right. And, and one of the things that I want them to do is I want them to ask questions. And so uh, when we read these things, when we see these videos, like what questions do you have? And uh, from that point forward, like that's how they're able to, to really begin, you know, their, their inquiry and their interest. And that's how it's, it's kind of individualized and tailored to each student. And then from there, it's about going out there and, and finding the information. And, um, and, you know, as the year goes on, they get better and better at it. And uh, I don't want to say that it becomes fun. Um, I mean, we try to have fun in history and we try to crack jokes, but history is, is definitely far from that. Um, but they end up developing an appreciation for the work that they do and for the information that they find. And uh, it never fails that like, as they learn about these new things, um, they think about it. And, and one of the things that they wanna know is like, 
why the hell were they never told? Like the teachers that they had from from kindergarten through up until they have me, why isn't that they decided not to tell us this? Like if this information is there and if a 12 or 13 year old found it, or even some of the questions they asked, like if a 12 or 13 year old was able to ask that question, we can't believe that no adult had ever asked that question before, either in history or today. So when we ask that question, why can't we find that answer? Or why can't we do something that seems really common sense? Like stop building goddamn pipelines. Like why can't we actually rely on on actual natural resources instead of actually piping in that oil all over the country? Um, and and they end up becoming pretty pissed off at the fact that they've been that they've been actively lied to. And uh, you know a lot of excuses that we hear today are you know kids are too young, kids aren't prepared. Um, and what I've learned in my 15 years of teaching um, middle school kids is that you know they're not too young. They they get it and they're mature and they're smart and that when adults want to use you know, their age or using maturity against them, it has nothing to do with the kids. It has everything to do with those adults that are saying it. It's because they don't want the truth out there. Um, but I've never had a kid um, walk out of my class at the end of a day, the end of a week, the end of a unit, the end of a year, um, the end of middle school and say, you know what? I wish I hadn't learned the truth. Like that just doesn't happen. Um, they're all really thankful and they're all really glad. And uh, we built up a really good community in class. And uh, that community building part is also important because it allows kids to be vulnerable and allows them to ask questions out loud. It allows them to, to, to talk about different topics. It allows them to disagree. Um, and so that's a really big part of history class too, is building up that community um, within their classroom because it's really hard to learn about other people and other communities uh, that you read about in books if you're not building that same community and willing to learn about the people that are right next to you. And uh, they don't always walk out of the class being best friends with everybody, but um, the goal is to have some a healthy respect and hopefully that permeates throughout the rest of, you know, the school itself. And hopefully it leads to, you know, less bullying and, and less problems that are that are out on the yard or, or at recess or at nutrition or after school. Um, and it really does hopefully like impact the entire community. And hopefully they're able to take that with them forward into high school and beyond. That's good. I wish more grown folks would get with the program on that. <laughs> <Ugh>. <laughs> <laughs> Tell you doing work and trying to get things like land run reenactments out of schools and like even those things that should be no brainers. Let you know, forget you trying to fix the fucking curriculum. Getting that shit out of the way has been a nightmare. Let me tell you. And yeah. we have not, and we haven't been successful in all the districts we've tried it in, absolutely for sure. But yeah, I mean, no, yeah. I mean, for, for as much people, for as much as people in America want to talk about progress, like we, we really have not made any. And it's funny that like all these politicians really run on the idea of hope and progress and moving forward. And yet, and still year after year, decade after decade, century after century, like we're really stuck in the same places. Like we, we don't want progress. We want things to say exactly what they are because they benefit certain people. Right. Maintain the system. If they start telling the truth, that system, <laughs> it's gonna be harder to maintain the system if you're not maintaining that narrative, right? So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're still telling the same fucking lies about Thanksgiving. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. In my, in my class, we don't even call it Thanksgiving. We just call it Turkey Day. And we talk about like the meaning behind it. And it doesn't mean that you can't celebrate that day, but you have to understand what comes behind it. I mean, right. it, still can't, it, it can still be a day about you know, your community, your family, being able to sit down and have a nice meal and that sort of thing. But we can't romanticize it and continuously talk about, you know, the pilgrims and, you know, the quote unquote Indians um, and, and think that that was something that was great that happened because it wasn't. And right. we can look at the way that we are today and we can tell that this is not. 
I mean, you can't have the Dakota Access Pipeline and, and, and believe that that is not a direct result of Thanksgiving. I mean, those two things don't necessarily go together. Thanksgiving couldn't have been that positive and that great for the pilgrims or for the Indians. And we still end up having that. Like that should not necessarily work. Right. And it wasn't even, you know, this little friendship dinner like they try to tell you it was, right? <laughs> hey, you want to come back next month and and, talk, and tell us about Thanksgiving? <laughs> oh, definitely. I, I will okay. more than happy to come back and That'll talk about great. Thanksgiving. That'll be great. That'll be great because we need that too. My um, One of my sons almost got kicked out of third grade over Thanksgiving because he refused to uh, regurgitate the narrative they had given him. <laughs> Oh, I, I, I almost got myself in, in a lot of trouble a, a couple of schools ago that I was teaching at because they wanted to do the whole reenactment thing. And I was like, no, nah, oh. we're not we're not doing that. Like, you're not you're not putting these these black and brown kids in, into to feathers and headdresses and that sort of thing. I'm like, one, like, is that what you think that they were wearing back in November when it was cold as hell? Like, do we have to go and look at Massachusetts in, in November and, and see what the weather is to see you having them dressed up in loincloth and and you know, yeah. sandals and shit, cause it's cold. And you're actually wearing a sweater here in California in November. What are you doing in Massachusetts back then? But it's all that common sense stuff that, that we don't bother to think about because most people have never had that that muscle ever activated. Mm, and I think like once true. you get it activated, it's really hard to turn it off. Mm, that's true. The only Thanksgiving reenactment that I approve of is uh, Wednesday Adams when she burns the village down to the ground. That's, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> I approve of that message too. <laughs> All right. Well, we are going to wrap up with that. Thank you so much for being here. And we look forward to seeing you next month now that <laughs> we've decided we're going to talk about Thanksgiving. <laughs> hey, I'm here for it. Thank you all for having me and uh, look forward to seeing you then. All right. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Bye. All right. Any final thoughts, Carrie? I feel like I've learned a bunch. I feel like I should have been taking notes. <laughs> well, the good news is this will be on YouTube forever. True, true. I can take notes later. <laughs> All right. It, things I don't know much about because I grew up ignorant. Yes, but, we all did because that this is America. Yeah, yeah. And if I had the rights to that song, I would play it right now as we oh. go out, but I don't. Support Childish Gambino. <laughs> <laughs>